The Apostate, Part 3 When Haggis began casting for the next three days in the summer of 2009, he asked Jason Bay to read for the part of a cop. Bay was a gravel-voiced character actor who had played Demi Moore's love interest in G.I. Jane. In the late 90s, Haggis had worked with Bay on a CBS series, Family Law. Like so many others, Bay had come to the church through the Beverly Hills Playhouse. In old promotional materials for the church, he is quoted as saying that Scientology is a rocket ride to spiritual freedom. Bay told Haggis, You should know that I'm no longer in Scientology. Actually, I'm one of its most outspoken critics. The church would be very unhappy if you hire me. Haggis responded, Nobody tells me who I cast. He looked at a lengthy video that Bay had posted on the Internet in which he denounced the church as destructive and a ripoff. Haggis thought that Bay had gone over the edge, but he asked if they could talk. The two men met at Patrick's Roadhouse, a coffee shop on the beach in Pacific Palisades. Bay was calmer than he had been in the video, which he called a snapshot of me having been out only three months. Even though Bay had renounced the church, he continued to use Scientology methods when dealing with members and former members. It's almost like I can speak Chinese, I understand the culture, he explained to me. In several meetings with Haggis, he employed techniques based on what Hubbard labeled ethics conditions. These range from confusion at the bottom and ascend through treason, enemy, doubt, liability, and emergency, eventually leading to power. Each one of the conditions has a specific set of steps and a formula, and once that formula is applied correctly, you will move up to the next highest condition, Bay explained. I assume that Paul was in a condition of doubt. Bay joined Scientology in 1994. He told Haggis that in the late 90s, he began having emotional problems, and the church recommended auditing and coursework. In retrospect, he felt that it had done no good. I was paying money for them to fuck me up, he said. I spent about five or six thousand dollars trying to get better, and I continued to get worse. He says that when he finally decided to leave the church in 2007, he told an official that the church was in a condition of liability to him. Ordinarily, when a Scientologist does something wrong, especially something that might damage the image of the organization, he has to make amends, often in the form of a substantial contribution. But now, the situation was reversed. Bay recalls telling the official, You guys don't have any policies to make up the damage. He eventually suggested to the official that the church buy property and lease it to him at a negligible rate. The church now characterizes this as an attempt at extortion. Bay was reluctant to use the word brainwashing, whatever the fuck that is. But he did feel that his mind had been somehow taken over. You have all these strengths, you have all these thoughts, all these ways of looking at things that are L. Ron Hubbard's, he explained. You think you're becoming more you. But within that is an implanted thing, which is you, the Scientologist. Perhaps because Haggis had never been as much of a true believer as some members, he didn't feel as deeply betrayed as Bay did. I didn't feel that some worm had buried itself in my ear, and if you plucked it out, you would find L. Ron Hubbard and his thought, he told me. But as he continued his investigation, he became increasingly disturbed. 
He read the church's official rebuttal to the St. Petersburg Times series in the Scientology magazine Freedom. It included an annotated transcript of conversations that had taken place between the reporters and representatives of the church, including Tommy Davis and his wife, Jessica Feshbach. In Freedom's rendition of those conversations, the reporter's sources were not named, perhaps to shield Scientologists from the shock of seeing familiar names publicly denouncing the organization. Rathbun was called Kingpin, and Scobie, the Adulteress. At one point in the transcribed conversations, Davis reminded the reporters that Scobie had been expelled from the church leadership because of an affair. The reporters responded that she had denied having sexual contact outside her marriage. That's a lie, Davis told them. Feshbach, who had a stack of documents, elaborated. She has written an admission of each one of her instances of extramarital indiscretion. I believe there were five. When Haggis read this in Freedom, he presumed that the church had obtained its information from the declarations that members sometimes provide after auditing. Such confessions are supposed to be confidential. Scientology denies that it obtained the information this way, and Davis produced an affidavit signed by Scobie in which she admits to having liaisons. Scobie denies committing adultery and says that she did not write the affidavit. She says that she signed it in the hope of leaving the church on good terms so that she could stay in touch with relatives. In his letter to Davis, Haggis said that he was worried that the church might look through his files to smear him too. Luckily, I have never held myself up to be anyone's role model, he wrote. At his house, Haggis finished telling his friends what he had learned. He suggested that they should at least examine the evidence. I directed them to certain websites, he said, mentioning xscientologykids.com, which was created by three young women who grew up in Scientology and subsequently left. Many stories on the site are from men and women who joined the Sea Org before turning 18. One of them was Jenna Miscavige Hill, David Miscavige's niece, who joined when she was 12. For Hill and many others, formal education had stopped when they entered the Sea Org, leaving them especially ill-prepared, they say, for coping with life outside the church. The stories Haggis found on the Internet of children drafted into the Sea Org appalled him. They were 10 years old, 12 years old, signing billion-year contracts. And their parents go along with this, Haggis told me. Scrubbing pots, manual labor, that so deeply touched me. My God, it horrified me. The stories of the Sea Org children reminded Haggis of child slaves he had seen in Haiti. Many Sea Org volunteers find themselves with no viable options for adulthood. If they try to leave, the church presents them with a freeloader tab for all the coursework and counseling they have received. The bill can amount to more than $100,000. Payment is required in order to leave in good standing. Many of them actually pay it, Haggis said. They leave. They're ashamed of what they've done. They've got no money, no job history. They're lost. They just disappear. In what seemed like a very unguarded comment, he said, I would gladly take down the church for that one thing. The church says that it adheres to all child labor laws and that minors can't sign up without parental consent. The freeloader tabs are an ecclesiastical matter and are not enforced through litigation. Haggis's friends came away from the meeting with mixed feelings. 
We all left no clearer than we went in, Archer said. Isham felt that there was still a possibility of getting Haggis to behave himself. He said that Haggis had agreed that it wasn't helping anyone to continue distributing the letter and had promised not to circulate it further. Unmentioned was the fact that this would be the last time most of them ever spoke to Haggis. I asked Isham if he had taken Haggis's advice and looked at the websites or the articles in the St. Petersburg Times. I started to, he said, but it was like reading Mein Kampf if you wanted to know something about the Jewish religion. In the days after the friends visited Haggis's home, church officials and members came to his office, distracting his colleagues, particularly his producing partner, Michael Nozick, who was not a Scientologist. Every day for hours he would have conversations with them, Nozick told me. It was August 2009, and shooting for the next three days was set to start in Pittsburgh at the end of the month. The office desperately needed Haggis's attention. But he felt a need to go through the process fully, Nozick says. He wanted to give them a full hearing. I listened to their point of view, but I didn't change my mind, Haggis says, noting that the Scientology officials became more livid and irrational. He added, I applied more Scientology in those meetings than they did. Davis and other church officials told Haggis that Miscavige had not beaten his employees. His accusers, they said, had committed the violence. Supposing that was true, Haggis said, why hadn't Miscavige stopped it? Haggis recalls that at one meeting, he told Davis and five other officials, if someone in my organization is beating people, I would sure know about it. You think I would put up with it? And I'm not that good a person. Haggis noted that if the rumors of Miscavige's violent temper were true, it proved that everyone is fallible. Look at Martin Luther King Jr., he said, alluding to King's sexual improprieties. How dare you compare Dave Miscavige with Martin Luther King, one of the officials shouted. Haggis was shocked. They thought that comparing Miscavige to Martin Luther King was debasing his character, he says. If they were trying to convince me that Scientology was not a cult, they did a very poor job of it. Davis says that King's name never came up. In October 2009, Marty Rathbun called Haggis and asked if he could publish the resignation letter on his blog. Rathbun had become an informal spokesperson for defectors who believed that the church had broken away from Hubbard's original teachings. Haggis was in Pittsburgh shooting his picture. You're a journalist. You don't need my permission, Haggis said, although he asked Rathbun to excise parts related to Katie's homosexuality. Haggis says that he didn't think about the consequences of his decision. I thought it would show up on a couple of websites. I'm a writer. I'm not Lindsay Lohan. Rathbun got 55,000 hits on his blog that afternoon. The next morning, the story was in newspapers around the world. At the time Haggis was doing his research, the FBI was conducting its own investigation. In December 2009, Trisha Whitehill, a special agent from the Los Angeles office, flew to Florida to interview former members of the church in the FBI's office in downtown Clearwater, which happens to be directly across the street from Scientology's spiritual headquarters. Tom DeVault, who spoke with Whitehill, told me, I understood that the investigation had been going on for quite a while. He says Whitehill confided that she hadn't told the local agents what the investigation was about, 
in case the office had been infiltrated. Amy Scobie spoke to the FBI for two days. They wanted a full download about the abuse, she told me. Whitehall and Valerie Venegas, the lead agent on the case, also interviewed former Sea Org members in California. One of them was Gary Moorhead, who had been the head of security at the Gold Base. He left the church in 1996. In February 2010, he spoke to Whitehill and told her that he had developed a blow drill to track down Sea Org members who had left Gold Base. We got wickedly good at it, he says. In 13 years, he estimates, he and his security team brought more than 100 Sea Org members back to the base. When emotional, spiritual, or psychological pressure failed to work, Moorhead says, physical force was sometimes used to bring escapees back. The church says that blow drills do not exist. Whitehill and Venegas worked on a special task force devoted to human trafficking. The laws regarding trafficking were built largely around forced prostitution, but they also pertain to slave labor. Under federal law, slavery is defined in part by the use of coercion, torture, starvation, imprisonment, threats, and psychological abuse. The California Penal Code lists several indicators that someone may be a victim of human trafficking. Signs of trauma or fatigue, being afraid or unable to talk because of censorship by others or security measures that prevent communication with others. Working in one place without the freedom to move about. Owing a debt to one's employer and not having control over identification documents. Those conditions echo the testimony of many former Sea Org members who lived at the Gold Base. Sea Org members who have failed to fulfill their ecclesiastical responsibilities may be sent to one of the church's several rehabilitation project force locations. Defectors describe them as punitive re-education camps. In California, there is one in Los Angeles. Until 2005, there was one near the Gold Base at a place called Happy Valley. Bruce Hines, the defector-turned-research physicist, says that he was confined to RPF for six years, first in L.A., then in Happy Valley. He recalls that the properties were heavily guarded and that anyone who tried to flee would be tracked down and subjected to further punishment. In 1995, when I was put in RPF, there were 12 of us, Hines said. At the high point in 2000, there were about 120 of us, some members have been in RPF for more than a decade, doing manual labor and extensive spiritual work. Davis says that Sea Org members enter RPF by their own choosing and can leave at any time. The manual labor maintains church facilities and instills pride of accomplishment. In 2009, two former Sea Org members, Claire and Mark Headley, filed lawsuits against the church. They had both joined as children. Claire became a member of the Sea Org at the age of 16 and was assigned to the Gold Base. She says she wasn't allowed to tell anyone where she was going, not even her mother, who was made to sign over guardianship. Claire's mother, who is still in the church, has issued a sworn statement denying that she lost contact with her daughter. The security apparatus at the Gold Base intimidated Claire. Even though I had been in Scientology pretty much all my life, this was a whole new world she told me. She says she was rarely allowed even a telephone to call her mother. Every last trace of my life as I knew it was thrown away, she said. It was like living in George Orwell's 1984. 
Claire met Mark Headley, also a teenager, soon after her arrival. We had no ties to anyone not in Scientology, Claire said. It was a very closeted and controlled existence. Mark says it was widely known around the base that he was one of the first people Tom Cruise audited. In Scientology, the auditor bears a significant responsibility for the progress of his subject. If you audit somebody and that person leaves the organization, there's only one person whose fault that is, the auditor, Headley told me. Cruz's attorney says that Cruz doesn't recall meeting Mark. Claire and Mark fell in love and married in 1992. She says that she was pressured by the church to have two abortions because of a stipulation that Sea Org members can't have children. The church denies that it pressures members to terminate pregnancies. Lucy James, a former Scientologist who had access to Sea Org personnel records, says that she knows of dozens of cases in which members were pressed to have abortions. In 2005, Mark Headley says he was punished by Miscavige during an argument. He and his wife quit. The church calls Mark Headley dishonest, claiming that he kept $700 in profits after being authorized to sell Scientology camera equipment. Headley says that shipping costs and other expenses account for the discrepancy. In 2009, the Headleys filed their suits, which maintained that working conditions at the gold base violated labor and human trafficking laws. The church responded that the Headleys were ministers who had voluntarily submitted to the rigors of their calling, and that the First Amendment protected Scientology's religious practices. The court agreed with this argument and dismissed the Headleys' complaints awarding the church $40,000 in litigation costs. The court also indicated that the Headleys were technically free to leave the gold base. The Headleys have appealed the rulings. Defectors also talked to the FBI about Miscavige's luxurious lifestyle. The law prohibits the head of a tax-exempt organization from enjoying unusual perks or compensation. It's called inurement. Tommy Davis refused to disclose how much money Miscavige earns, and the church isn't required to do so. But Headley and other defectors suggest that Miscavige lives more like a Hollywood star than like the head of a religious organization, flying on chartered jets and wearing shoes custom-made in London. Claire Headley says that when she was in Scientology, Miscavige had five stewards and two chefs at his disposal. He also had a large car collection including a Saline Mustang, similar to one owned by Cruz, and six motorcycles. The church denies this characterization and vigorously objects to the suggestion that church funds inure to the private benefit of Mr. Miscavige. Former Sea Org members report that Miscavige receives elaborate birthday and Christmas gifts from Scientology groups around the world. One year he was given a Virus 985C34V, a motorcycle with a retail price of $70,000. These gifts are tokens of love and respect for Mr. Mikhevich, Davis informed me. By contrast, Sea Org members typically receive $50 a week. Often the stipend is docked for small infractions, such as failing to meet production quotas or skipping scripture study sessions. According to Janella Webster, who was in the Sea Org for 19 years before defecting in 2006, it wasn't unusual for a member to be paid as little as $13 a week. I recently spoke with two sources in the FBI who are close to the investigation. They assured me that the case remains open.
Last April, John Brousseau, who had been in the Sea Org for more than 30 years, left the gold base. He was unhappy with Miskevich, his former brother-in-law, whom he considered detrimental to the goals of Scientology. He drove across the country to South Texas to meet Marty Rathbun. I was there a couple of nights, he says. At 5.30 one morning, he was leaving the motel room where he was staying to get coffee when he heard footsteps behind him. It was Tommy Davis. He and 19 church members had tracked Brousseau down. Brousseau locked himself in his room and called Rathbun, who alerted the police. Davis went home without Brousseau. In a deposition given in July, Davis said no when he asked if he had ever followed a sea organization member that has blown, fled the church. Under further questioning, he admitted that he and an entourage had flown to Texas in a jet chartered by Scientology and had shown up outside Brousseau's motel room at dawn, but he insisted that he was only trying to see a friend of mine. Davis now calls Brousseau a liar. Brousseau says that his defection caused anxiety, in part because he had worked on a series of special projects for Tom Cruise. Brousseau maintained grounds and buildings on the gold base. He worked for 14 months on the renovation of the Free Winds, the only ship left in Scientology's fleet. He also says that he installed bars over the doors of the Hole at the Gold Base shortly after Rathbun escaped. The church denies this. In 2005, Miskevich showed Cruz a Harley-Davidson motorcycle he owned. At Miskevich's request, Brousseau had had the vehicle's parts plated with brushed nickel and painted candy apple red. Brousseau recalls, Cruz asked me, God, could you paint my bike like that? I looked at Miskevich, and Miskevich agreed. Cruz brought in two motorcycles to be painted, a Triumph and a Honda Rune. The Honda had been given to him by Spielberg after the filming of War of the Worlds. The Honda already had a custom paint job by the set designer, Rousseau recalls. Each motorcycle had to be taken apart completely, and all the parts nickel-plated before it was painted. The church denies Rousseau's account. Rousseau also says that he helped customize a Ford Excursion SUV that Cruz owned, installing features such as handmade eucalyptus paneling. The customization job was presented to Tom Cruise as a gift from David Miscavige, he said. I was getting paid $50 a week, he recalls, and I'm supposed to be working for the betterment of mankind? Several years ago, Brousseau says, he worked on the renovation of an airport hangar that Cruise maintains in Burbank. Sea Org members installed foul scaffolding, giant banners bearing the emblems of aircraft manufacturers and a luxurious office that was fabricated at church facilities, then reassembled inside the hangar. Rousseau showed me dozens of photographs documenting his work for Cruz. Both Cruz's attorney and the church deny Rousseau's account. Cruz's attorney says that, The Church of Scientology has never expended any funds to the personal benefit of Mr. Cruz, or provided him with free services. Tommy Davis says that these projects were done by contractors, and that Brousseau acted merely as an advisor. He also says, None of the church staff involved were coerced in any way to assist Mr. Cruz. Church staff, and indeed church members, hold Mr. Cruz very high in regard and are honored to assist him. Whatever small economic benefit Mr. Cruz may have received from the assistance of church staff 
pales into comparisons to the benefits the Church has received from Mr. Cruz's many years of volunteer efforts for the Church. Yet this assistance may have involved many hours of unpaid labor on the part of Sea Org members. Miskevich's official title is Chairman of the Board of the Religious Technology Center, but he dominates the entire organization. His word is absolute, and he imposes his will even on some of the people closest to him. According to Rinder and Brousseau in June 2006, while Miskevich was away from the gold base, his wife, Shelley, filled several job vacancies without her husband's permission. Soon afterward, she disappeared. Her current status is unknown. Tommy Davis told me, I definitely know where she is, but he won't disclose where that is. The garden behind Ann Archer and Terry Jastrow's house in Brentwood is filled with olive trees and hummingbirds. A fountain gurgles beside the swimming pool. When I visited last May, Jastrow told me about the first time he met Archer in Milton Katselis' class. I saw this girl sitting next to Milton, Jastrow recalled. I said, who is that? There was a cool wind blowing in from the Pacific, and Archer drew a shawl around her. We were friends for about a year and a half before we ever had our first date, Archer said. They were married in 1978. Our relationship really works, Jastrow said. We attribute that essentially 100% to applying Scientology. The two spoke of the techniques that had helped them, such as never being critical of the other and never interrupting. This isn't a creed, Archer said. These are basic natural laws of life. She described Hubbard as an engineer who had codified human emotional states in order to guide people to feel a zest and a love for life. I asked them how the controversy surrounding Scientology has affected them. It hasn't touched me, Archer said. It's not that I'm not aware of it. She went on. Scientology is growing. It's in 165 countries, translated into 50 languages, Jastrow added. It's the fastest-growing religion. He added, Scientologists do more good things for more people in more places around the world than any other organization ever. He continued, When you study the historical perspective of new faiths, historically, they've all been attacked, Archer said. Look at what happened to the, the Christians, Jastro said simultaneously. Think of the Mormons and the Christian scientists. We talked about the church's focus on celebrities. Hubbard recognized that if you really want to inspire a culture to have peace and greatness and harmony among men, you need to respect and help the artist to prosper and flourish, Archer said. And if he's particularly well-known, he needs a place where he can be comfortable. Celebrity centers provide that. She blamed the press for concentrating too much on Scientology celebrities. Journalists, she said, don't write about the hundreds of thousands of other Scientologists. Millions, millions of other Scientologists. They only write about four friggin' people. The church won't release official membership figures, but it informally claims eight million members worldwide. Davis says that the figure comes from a number of people throughout the world who have donated to the church. There is no process of conversion. There is no baptism, Davis told me. It was a simple decision. Either you are or you aren't. 
a survey of American religious affiliations compiled in the Statistical Abstract of the United States, estimates that only 25,000 Americans actually call themselves Scientologists. That's less than half the number who identify themselves as Rastafarians. Jastrow suggested that Scientology's critics often had a vested interest. He pointed to psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors, drug makers, pharmacies, All those people who make a living and profit and pay their mortgages and pay their college educations and buy their cars, etc., etc., based on people not being well. He cited a recent article in USA Today, which noted that an alarmingly high number of soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan had been hospitalized for mental illness. Drugs merely mask mental distress, he said, whereas Scientology will solve the source of the problem. The medical and pharmaceutical industries are prime funders and sponsors of the media, he said, and therefore might exert influence on people telling the whole and true story about Scientology just because of the profit motive. Scientology has perpetuated Hubbard's antagonism toward psychiatry. An organization that the church co-founded, the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, maintains a permanent exhibit in Los Angeles called Psychiatry, an Industry of Death which argues that psychiatry contributed to the rise of Nazism and apartheid. The group is behind an effort to help achieve legislative protections against abusive psychiatric treatment and drugging of children. Paul Haggis has hosted an event for the organization at his home. His defection from Scientology has not changed his view that psychotropic drugs are overprescribed for children. Jastrow in his backyard told me, Scientology is going to be huge, and it's going to help mankind right itself. He asked me, what else is there that we can hang our hopes on? That's improving the civilization, Archer added. Is there some other religion on the horizon that's going to help mankind? He said. Just tell me where, if not Scientology, where? Archer and Jastrow found their way into Scientology in the mid-70s. But Tommy Davis was reared in Archer's original faith, Christian science. He never met L. Ron Hubbard. He was 13 years old on January 24, 1986, the day Hubbard died. Although Davis grew up amid money and celebrity, he impressed people with his modesty and his idealism. Like Paul Haggis, Davis was first drawn to the church because of romantic problems. In 1996, he told details that, when he was 17, He was having trouble with a girlfriend and went to his mother for advice. Archer suggested that he go to the Celebrity Center. After taking the Personal Values and Integrity course, Davis became a Scientologist. In 1990, Davis was accepted at Columbia University. But according to the defector John Peeler, who was then the secretary to Karen Hollander, the president of the Celebrity Center, pressure was put on Davis to join the Sea Org. Hollander, Peeler says, wanted Tommy to be her personal assistant. Karen felt that because of who his parents were and the fact that he already had close friendships with other celebrities, he'd be a good fit, Peeler said. Whenever celebrities came in, there would be Ann Archer's son. At first, Davis resisted. He wanted to go to college, Peeler said. That fall, Davis entered Columbia. He attended for a semester, then dropped out and joined the Sea Org. I always wanted to do something that helped people, Davis explained to me. 
I didn't think the world needed another doctor or lawyer. Archer and Jastrow say that they were surprised by Tommy's decision. We were hoping he'd get his college education, Jastrow said. Davis became fiercely committed to the Sea Org. He got a tattoo on one arm of its logo. Two palm fronds embracing a star, supposedly the emblem of the Galactic Confederacy 75 million years ago. He began working at the Celebrity Center, attending to young stars like Juliet Lewis before taking on Tom Cruise. David Miscavige was impressed with Davis. Mike Rinder recalled, Miscavige liked the fact that he was young and looked trendy and wore Armani suits. Paul Haggis remembers first meeting Davis at the Celebrity Center in the early 90s. He was a sweet and bright boy, Haggis said. Davis's rise within Scientology was not without difficulty. In 2005, Davis was sent to Clearwater to participate in something called the Estates Project Force. He was there at the same time as Donna Shannon, a veterinarian who had become an OT7 before joining the Sea Org. She had thought that she was attending a kind of boot camp for new Sea Org members and was surprised to see veterans like Davis. She says that Davis, a pretty nice guy, was subjected to extensive hazing. He complained about scrubbing a dumpster with a toothbrush till late at night, she recalls. Then he'd be up at six to do our laundry. Only later did Shannon learn that Davis was Ann Archer's son. Shannon and Davis worked together for a while in Clearwater, maintaining the grounds. I was supposedly supervising him, Shannon says. I was told to make him work really hard. At one point, Shannon says, Davis borrowed about $100 from her because he didn't have money for food. One day, according to Shannon, she and Davis were taking the bus to a work project. She asked why he was in the EPF. I got busted, Davis told her. Using Scientology jargon, he said, I fucked up on Tom Cruise's lines, meaning that he had botched a project that Cruise was involved in. I just want to do my stuff and get back on post. Shannon recalled it suddenly. It was like a veil went over his eyes, and he goes, I already said too much. Several months later, Davis paid her back the money. Davis says that he does not recall meeting Shannon, has never scrubbed a dumpster, and has never had a need to borrow money. Davis ascended to his role as spokesman in 2007. He has since become known for his aggressive defenses of the church. In 2007, the BBC began reporting an investigative story about Scientology. From the start, the BBC crew, led by John Sweeney, was overshadowed by a Scientology film crew. Davis traveled across the U.S. to disrupt Sweeney's interviews with Scientology dissidents. The two men had a number of confrontations. In an incident captured on video in Florida, Sweeney suggested that Scientology is a sadistic cult. Davis responds, For you to repeatedly refer to my faith in those terms is so derogatory, so offensive, and so bigoted. And the reason you kept repeating it is because you wanted to get a reaction like you're getting right now. Well, buddy, you got it. Right here. Right now. I'm angry. Real angry. The two men had another encounter that left Sweeney screaming as Davis goaded him. An incident so raw that Sweeney apologized to his viewers. Shortly afterward in March 2007, 
Davis mysteriously disappeared. He was under considerable stress. According to Mike Reinder, Davis had told Sweeney that he reported to Miscavige every day, and that angered Miscavige, who wanted to be seen as focused on spiritual matters, not public relations. According to Rinder, Davis blew. A few days later, he surfaced in Las Vegas. Davis was sent to Clearwater, where he was security-checked by Jessica Feshbach, a church stalwart. A security check involves seeking to gain a confession with an e-meter in order to route out subversion. It can function as a powerful form of thought control. Davis claims that he never fled the church and was not in Las Vegas. He did go to Clearwater. I went to Florida and worked there for a year and took some time off, he told me. I did a lot of studying, a lot of auditing. He and Feshbach subsequently got married. When I first contacted Tommy Davis last April, he expressed a reluctance to talk, saying that he had already spent a month responding to Paul Haggis. It made little difference, he said. The last thing I'm interested in is dredging all this up again. He kept putting me off, saying that he was too busy to get together, but he promised we would meet when he was more available. In an email, he said, We should plan on spending at least a full day together, as there is a lot I would want to show you. We finally arranged to meet on Memorial Day weekend. I flew to Los Angeles and waited for him to call. On Sunday at 3 o'clock, Davis appeared at my hotel with Fishbach. We sat at a table on the patio. Davis has his mother's sleepy eyes. His thick black hair was combed forward, with a lock falling boyishly into his forehead. He wore a wheat-colored suit with a blue shirt. Fashback, a slender, attractive woman, anxiously twirled her hair. Davis now told me that he was not willing to participate in or contribute to an article about Scientology through the lens of Paul Haggis. I had come to Los Angeles specifically to talk to him at a time he had chosen. I asked him if he had been told not to talk to me. He said no. Feshbeck said that she had spoken to Mark Isham, who I had interviewed the day before. He talked to you about what are supposed to be our confidential scriptures. Any discussion of the church's secret doctrines was offensive, he said. In my meeting with Isham, he asserted that Scientology was not a faith-based religion. I pointed out that, in Scientology's upper levels, there was a cosmology that would have to be accepted on faith. Isham said that he wasn't going to discuss the details of OT3. In the wrong hands, it can hurt people, he said. Everything I have to say about Paul I've already said, Davis told me. He agreed, however, to respond to written questions about the church. In late September, Davis and Feshbach, along with four attorneys representing the church, traveled to Manhattan to meet with me and six staff members of the New Yorker. In response to nearly a thousand queries, the Scientology delegation handed over 48 binders of supporting material, stretched nearly seven linear feet. Davis, in his early presentation, attacked the credibility of Scientology defectors, whom he calls bitter apostates. He said, they make up stories. They cite Brian Wilson, an Oxford sociologist, who has argued that testimony from the disaffected should be treated skeptically, noting, The apostate is generally in need of self-justification. 
he seeks to reconstruct his own past, to excuse his former affiliations, and to blame those who were formerly his closest associates. Davis spoke about Jerry Armstrong, a former Scientology archivist who copied, without permission, many of the church files on Hubbard, and who settled in a fraud suit against the church in 1986. Davis charged that Armstrong had forged many of the documents that he later disseminated in order to discredit the church's founder. He also alleged that Armstrong had spread rumors of a 1967 letter in which Hubbard told his wife that he was drinking lots of rum and popping pinks and grays while researching the operating Thetan material. Davis also noted that in 1984, Armstrong had been captured on videotape telling a friend, I can create documents with relative ease. You know, I did it for a living. Davis's decision to cite this evidence was curious. Though the quote cast doubt on Armstrong's ethics, it also suggested that forging documents had once been a part of a Scientologist's job. Davis passed around a photograph of Armstrong, which, he said, showed Armstrong sitting naked with a giant globe in his lap. This photo... This was a photo that was in a newspaper article he did where he said that all people should give up money, Davis said. He's not a very sane person. Armstrong told me that, in the photo, he is actually wearing running shorts under the globe. The article is about his attempt to create a movement for people to abandon the use of currency. He said that he received $800,000 in the 1986 settlement and had given most of the money away. The settlement prohibited Armstrong from talking about Scientology, a prohibition that he has ignored, and the church has won two breach-of-contract suits against him, including a $500,000 judgment in 2004. Davis also displayed photographs of what he said were bruises sustained by Mike Rinder's former wife in 2010, after Rinder physically assaulted her in a Florida parking lot. Rinder denies committing any violence, a sheriff's report supports this. Davis also showed a mugshot of Marty Rathbun in a jailhouse jumpsuit after being arrested in New Orleans last July for public drunkenness. Getting arrested for being drunk on the intersection of Bourbon and Toulouse? David cracked. That's like getting arrested for being a leper in a leper colony. Rathbun's arrest has been expunged. Claire and Mark Headley were the most despicable people in the world. Jeff Hawkins was an inveterate liar. I asked how, if these people were so reprehensible, they had all arrived at such elevated positions in the church. They weren't like that when they were in those positions, Davis responded. The defectors we were discussing had not only risen to positions of responsibility within the church, they had also ascended Scientology's ladder of spiritual accomplishment. I suggested to Davis that Scientology didn't seem to work if people at the highest levels of spiritual attainment were actually liars, adulterers, wife-beaters, and embezzlers. Scientology, Davis says, doesn't pretend to be perfect, and it shouldn't be judged on the misconduct of a few apostates. I haven't done things like that, Davis said. I haven't suborned perjury, destroyed evidence, lied, contrary to what Paul Haggis says. He spoke of his frustration with Haggis after his resignation. If he was so troubled and shaken on the fundamentals of Scientology, then why the hell did he stick around for 35 years? He continued. Did he stay a closet Scientologist for some career advancement purpose? 
Davis shook his head in disgust. I think he's the most hypocritical person in the world. We discussed the allegations of abuse lodged against Miskevich. The only people who will corroborate are their fellow apostates, Davis said. He produced affidavits from other Scientologists refuting the accusations and noted that the tales about Miskevich always hinged on inexplicable violent outbursts, Davis says. One would think that if such a thing occurred, which it most certainly did not, there'd have to be a reason. I had wondered about these stories as well. While Rinder and Rathbun were in the church, they had repeatedly claimed that allegations of abuse were baseless. Then, after Rinder defected, he said that Miscavige had beaten him 50 times. Rathbun has confessed that, in 1997, he ordered incriminating documents destroyed in the case of Lisa McPherson, the Scientologist who died of an embolism. If these men were capable of lying to protect the church, might they not also be capable of lying to destroy it? Davis later claimed that Rathbun is in fact trying to overthrow Scientology's current leadership and take over the church. Rathbun now makes his living by providing Hubbard-inspired counseling to other defectors, but he says that he has no desire to be a part of a hierarchical organization. Power corrupts, he says. Twelve other defectors told me that they had been beaten by Miscavige or had witnessed Miscavige beating other church staff members. Most of them, like John Peeler, noted that Miscavige's demeanor changed like the snap of a finger. Others who never saw such violence spoke of their constant fear of the leader's anger. At the meeting, Davis brought up Jack Parsons' Black Magic Society, which Hubbard had supposedly infiltrated. Davis said, he was sent in there by Robert Heinlein, the science fiction writer, who was running off-book intelligence operations for naval intelligence at the time. Davis said, A biography that just came out three weeks ago on Bob Heinlein actually confirmed it at a level that we'd never been able to before. The book to which Davis was referring is the first volume of an authorized Heinlein biography by William H. Patterson, Jr., there is no mention in the book of Heinlein's sending Hubbard to break up the Parsons' ring on the part of Naval Intelligence or any other organization. Patterson says that he looked into the matter at the suggestion of Scientologists, but found nothing. Davis and I discussed an assertion that Marty Rathbun had made to me about the OT3 creation story, the galactic revelations that Haggis had deemed madness. While Hubbard was in exile, Rathbun told me, he wrote a memo suggesting an experiment in which ascending Scientologists skipped the OT3 level. Miscavige shelved the idea, Rathbun told me. Davis called Rathbun's story libelous. He explained that the cornerstone of Scientology was the writings of L. Ron Hubbard. Mr. Hubbard's material must be and is applied precisely as written, Davis said. It's never altered. It's never changed. And there probably is no more heretical or more horrific transgression that you could have in the Scientology religion than to alter the technology. But hadn't certain derogatory references to homosexuality found in some editions of Hubbard's books been changed after his death? Davis admitted that that was so, but he maintained that the current editions are 100% absolutely fully verified as being according to what Mr. Hubbard wrote. Davis said they were checked against Hubbard's original dictation. The extent to which the references to homosexuality have changed, 
are because of mistaken dictation? I asked. No, because of the insertion, I guess, of somebody who was a bigot, Davis replied. Somebody put the material in those? I can only imagine. It wasn't Mr. Hubbard, David said, cutting me off. Who would have done it? I have no idea. Hmm. I don't think it really matters, Davis said. The point is that neither Mr. Hubbard nor the church has any opinion on the subject of anyone's sexual orientation. Someone inserted words that were not into his literature that was propagated under his name. And that's been corrected now? I asked. Yeah, I can only assume that's what happened, Davis said. After this exchange, I looked at some recent additions that the church had provided me with. On page 125 of Dianetics, a sexual pervert is defined as someone engaging in homosexuality, lesbianism, sexual sadism, etc. Apparently, the bigot's handiwork was not fully excised. At the meeting, Davis and I also discussed Hubbard's war record. His voice filling with emotion, he said that, if it was true that Hubbard had not been injured, then the injuries that he handled by the use of Dianetics procedures were never handled because they were injuries that never existed. Therefore, Dianetics is based on a lie. Therefore, Scientology is based on a lie. He concluded, the fact of the matter is that Mr. Hubbard was a war hero. In the binders that Davis provided, there was a letter from the U.S. Naval Hospital in Oakland dated December 1, 1945. The letter states that Hubbard had been hospitalized that year for a duodenal ulcer, but was technically pronounced fit for duty. This was the same period during which Hubbard claimed to have been blinded and lame. Davis had highlighted a passage, eyesight very poor, beginning with conjunctivitis in 1942, lame in right hip from service-connected injury, infection in bone, not misconduct, all service-connected. Davis added later that, according to Robert Heinlein, Hubbard's ankles had suffered a, a drumhead-type injury. This can result, Davis explained, when the ship is torpedoed or bombed. Davis acknowledged that some of Hubbard's medical records did not appear to corroborate Hubbard's versions of events. But Scientology has called other records that did confirm Hubbard's story, including documents from the National Archives in St. Louis. The man who did the research, Davis said, was Mr. X. Davis explained, Anyone who saw JFK remembers a scene on the mall where Kevin Costner's character goes and meets with a man named Mr. X, who's played by Donald Sutherland. In the film, Mr. X is an embittered intelligence agent who explains that the Kennedy assassination was actually a coup staged by the military-industrial complex. In real life, Davis said, Mr. X was Colonel Leroy Fletcher Prouty, who had worked in the Office of Special Operations. Oliver Stone, who directed JFK, says that Mr. X was a composite character based in part on Prouty. In the 80s, Prouty worked as a consultant for Scientology. We finally got so frustrated with this point of conflicting medical records that we took all of Mr. Hubbard's records to Fletcher Prouty, Davis told me. He actually solved the conundrum for us. According to Davis, Prouty explained to the church representatives that, because Hubbard had an intelligence background, his records were subjected to a process known as sheep dipping. 
Davis explained that this was military parlance for what gets done to a set of records for an intelligence officer, and essentially, they create two sets. He said, Fletcher Prouty basically issued an affidavit saying L. Ron Hubbard's records were sheep-dipped. Prouty died in 2001. Davis sent me a letter of what he said was a document that confirmed Hubbard's heroism. A. Notice of Separation from the U.S. Naval Services Dated December 6, 1945 The document specifies medals won by Hubbard, including a Purple Heart with a palm, implying that he was wounded in action twice. But Johnny e. Bircher, a spokesman for the Military Order of the Purple Heart, wrote to me that the Navy uses gold and silver stars, not a palm, to indicate multiple wounds. Davis included a photograph of medals that Hubbard supposedly won. Two of the medals in the photograph weren't even created until after Hubbard left active service. After filing a request with the National Archives in St. Louis, the New Yorker obtained what archivists assured us were Hubbard's complete military records, more than 900 pages. Nowhere in the file is there mention of Hubbard's being wounded in battle or breaking his feet. X-rays taken of Hubbard's right shoulder and hip showed calcium deposits, but there was no evidence of any bone or joint disease in his ankle. There is a notice of separation in the records, but it is not the one that Davis sent me. The differences in the two documents are telling. The St. Louis document indicates that Hubbard earned four medals for service, but they reflect no distinction or valor. In the church document, his job preference after the service is listed as studio screenwriting. In the official record, it is uncertain. The church document indicates falsely that Hubbard completed four years of college obtaining a degree in civil engineering. The official document correctly notes two years of college and no degree. On the church document, the commanding officer who signed off on Hubbard's separation was Howard D. Thompson, lieutenant commander. The file contains a letter from 2000 to another researcher who had written for more information about Thompson. An analyst with the National Archives responded that the records of commissioned naval officers at that time had been reviewed, and there was no Howard D. Thompson listed. The church, after being informed of these discrepancies, said, Our expert on military records has advised us that, in his considered opinion, there is nothing in the Thompson Notice that would lead him to question its validity. Eric Voles, an archivist who has worked at the St. Louis Archive for three decades, looked at the documents and pronounced it a forgery. Since leaving the church, Haggis has been in therapy, which he has found helpful. He's learned how much he blames others for his problems, especially those who are closest to him. I really wish I had found a good therapist when I was 21, he said. In Scientology, he always felt a subtle pressure to impress his auditor and then write up a glowing success story. Now, he said, I'm not fooling myself that I'm a better man than I am. Recently, he and Renard separated. They have moved to the same neighborhood in New York so they can share custody of their son. Renard has also decided to leave the church. Both say that the divorce has nothing to do with their renunciation of Scientology. On November 9th, the next three days premiered at the Ziegfeld Theater in Manhattan. 
Movie stars lined up on the red carpet as photographers fired away. Jason Bay, who plays a detective in the film, was there. He told me that he had taken in a young man, Daniel Montalvo, who had recently blown. He was placed in the Cadet Org, a junior version of the Sea Org, at age five, and joined the Sea Org at eleven. He's never seen television, Bay said. He doesn't even know who Robert Redford is. After the screening, everyone drifted over to the Oak Room of the Plaza Hotel. Haggis was in a corner receiving accolades from his friends when I found him. I asked him if he felt that he had finally left Scientology. I feel much more myself, but there's a sadness, he admitted. If you identify yourself with something for so long, and suddenly you think of yourself as not that thing, it leaves a bit of space. He went on. It's really not the sense of a loss of community. Those people who walked away from me were never really my friends. He understood how they felt about him and why. In Scientology, in the ethics conditions, as you go down from normal through doubt, then you get to enemy, and finally, near the bottom, there is treason. What I did was a treasonous act. I once asked Haggis about the future of his relationship with Scientology. These people have long memories, he told me. My bet is that, within two years, you're going to read something about me in a scandal that looks like it has nothing to do with the church. He thought for a moment and then said, I was in a cult for 34 years. Everyone else could see it. I don't know why I couldn't. End of part three.